0: We pray for us once more. Lord, we ask that you would grant us now understanding of a difficult text, that you would help us to see your son Jesus more clearly, that you would increase our faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a church, we're currently preaching through the Gospel of John. We've reached the betrayal of Jesus. Next comes the, the fullness of his trial and then his crucifixion. So for the first part of this year, we will be taken up with Jesus' sufferings. As we've already heard in the service, there's any number of reasons why we might suffer. Sometimes we do suffer for as a consequence for our sin. Sometimes we suffer for righteousness' sake, by being rejected by the world. Sometimes we just have no idea why it is that we suffer this or that, and we can't make any sense of it. You know what would really ruin 2023 for me is if we all died and our suffering was meaningless. Many people live like that's a live possibility. Any moment they could die and all the suffering, all the trials, totally, totally meaningless. So for the next uh, two weeks, we're going to preach a couple sermons on Job that famous righteous sufferer from the Old Testament who himself wrestled with some of those thoughts and feelings. makes a good pairing with where we are in John. So today we're going to preach through Job chapter 16. Next week we'll look at Job chapter 17. Now Job, the book, is notoriously, notoriously difficult. Difficult to read, difficult to understand, difficult to preach, difficult to hear preached, Certainly difficult to just drop into the middle of the book with no warning and then preach two one-off sermons. I never would have chosen this. Paul chose this and then went on vacation. (laughs) But he was confident that we would be able to work through this together, and so we shall. But in order to prepare our thinking about uh, chapter 16 and our, our text next week, we really do have to take a moment just in this initial sermon to orient ourselves to the entire book. What makes Job such a difficult book? Why do I say this? Especially if you haven't read Job recently or you're not really familiar with the book. Well, why is he saying Job is, is such a difficult book? Number one, it, it tackles a difficult topic intellectually. Job considers suffering and confronts you with the problem of evil. Why do people suffer? Why do good people suffer? Why does a good God allow suffering and evil in the world? These aren't entry-level questions in Philosophy 101. These are the questions. It also tackles a difficult topic emotionally. Job suffers profound loss. He experiences grief that almost drives him insane. It certainly pushes him to a sometimes almost nihilistic view of the world, and it makes him suicidal at many points. And you have to, in in reading the book, you have to wrestle with all of Job's ups and downs in this very dark state of mind that he's in. It tackles the topic in a different, difficult literary style. I mean, the majority of the book is written in complex poetry, and it often uses very obscure ancient references that are usually or always lost on us. And it's a very long book. You cannot make sense of it without reading the whole thing, so you have to sit and park and be willing to do the work. And it tackles the whole topic with a really complex theology. The vast majority of the book, the vast majority of the book is recording speeches that teach bad theology or that apply good theology in bad ways. That makes it incredibly difficult to read and understand. You can't just jump in at a random point and read without careful attention to the context and the structure of the whole book. I mean, given how serious the topics that Job covers are, that would kind of be like tossing a razor-sharp kitchen knife back and forth cavalierly. I mean, you can think about it, right? Job's friends say things like this. As for me, I would seek God. To God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who are mourned are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God repro- reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. That sounds pretty faith filled. It sounds very psalm like. On the other hand, Job says things like I would choose strangling and death rather than life. I hate my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, speaking to God, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him and visit him every moment and test him every morning? Why won't you leave me alone? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What profit do we get if we pray to Him? It's all one, therefore I say. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Sounds pretty faithless. And yet at the end of the book, God says to Job's friends, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So how do you read one chapter out of this book and interpret it? Context is always king, but today it is emperor supreme. So in order to understand what is going on in Job 16, we really do have to situate it within the entire story of the book, and we, we do kind of need to know how it all ends. So before we dive into Job 16 and then Job 17 next week, we're going to recap the main gist of the book, and we'll see how all the pieces fit together, at least generally, Here's a refresher of the the story. Remember, Job, he was a righteous man. As the narrator says right at the beginning of the book, he was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, this doesn't mean Job was perfectly sinless, but he feared God. He confessed his sins. He made regular offerings. When his adult children would get together and throw parties, Job would offer burnt offerings just in case they sinned. He was righteous, and he was also quite blessed, materially speaking. He was rich. His livestock amount, when translated into modern-day wealth, would make him a mogul. He had ten children. He enjoyed his life. But the scene changes at the beginning of the book, and then we get a glimpse into the heavenly throne room, into the heavenly court. There, God held council with his spiritual cabinet. And then in, in that council, Satan comes, and he stands in the council And God, God first, brings up to Satan, Job. He says, look at my servant, Job. Satan scoffs, (laughs) Job. Job only fears you. He's only as good as he is because of how materially blessed he is. Take all that away, and he will curse you to your face. And God accepts this challenge and gives Satan authority to afflict Job. And all told, there's some back and forth, but all told, Job loses all of his wealth, his children die, and he himself suffers a grave loss of health. He becomes painfully ill, has to be ostracized outside of the community. You remember, Job's wife famously tells him to curse God and die. Why do you hold on to your integrity? Just curse God and die already. And you wonder, wow, what a a great spouse. Well, what's going on in her mind? People wonder. Well, you, you have to... Think about it. Job references many times being out in the garbage dump. That's probably literal, right? In, in, in that time, when you got sick in a communicable way, you got put outside of the community. So you Think about it from Job's wife's perspective. She now has a worthless husband who's sick outside in the dump. It would be much easier for her if he just died and she was cut free. Her husband is basically a leper at the city dump. Think about that. Job's life becomes so miserable that his wife would rather that he die because she would be better off without him. But in all of it, Job refuses to curse God. In his grief, he declares, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And we are told, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job recognizes that God was in control. God himself speaks that way in heaven. He says to Satan at one point in the exchange, you incited me against Job for no reason. God takes credit for the calamity that Job is suffering. Job is right to recognize God's control, God's sovereignty. And he believes that God is just and good, and he refuses to reject his faith. And then, in Job's grief, along come three friends. They come to comfort and commiserate with Job. It starts out okay, but they quickly become a source of greater pain for him. After an extended period of silence, they start to condemn Job. They start to pick on him and argue with him. Each of his friends argues in, in one way or another, basically, that Job must have some great secret sin that he is being punished for. Job's friends are said to represent a, a kind of simplistic retribution theology. God punishes evil and he rewards good. So if you're suffering, especially to this degree, it must be because you are being punished and because of how bad you are suffering, you must have done something really, really bad. Throughout their speeches, they say a lot of things about God that taken by themselves, exerted from the context, they're true. They say a lot of things about God that are true. A lot of their statements have direct parallels in the Psalms. And they they don't come off as preaching kind of just a, a... basic carnal prosperity theology, right? Even though though there is some similarities between what Job's friends preach and and, and, and prosperity theology conceptually, you, you wouldn't find them on TBN, right? They wouldn't share a stage with Joel Osteen. They have a strong emphasis on sin. They say things like, God is manifold in his understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Right? They're saying, Any suffering you have is God still being merciful because you actually deserve far worse. Don't we talk like that sometimes? Yet the friends are condemned by God at the end of the book. Job's friends would say, hey, we're we're just applying Romans 1, Romans 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. They're condemned. But Job, in response to his friends, he vehemently argues his innocence. He says over and over, no, I do not have any secret sin. I have not committed any grave evil that would merit this punishment. You are wrong. Your theology is too simplistic. You are not applying it correctly. And so the majority of the book is them back and forth. Back and forth they go, making the same arguments repeatedly to each other. You're a sinner. This is punishment. I didn't do anything. This is not because of sin. But... Throughout that whole sequence, Job is not able to maintain a detached, stoic, objective perspective throughout all his suffering, throughout the dialogue. Throughout his responses to his friends, Job often speaks in a way that doubts God's justice. He talks like God has made some sort of mistake. Now, he sometimes recognizes a greater complexity to how God governs the world. more complex than the simplistic theology of his friends. But at other times, he seems to assume the same sort of simple cause and effect, and he believes his suffering is proof that God is punishing him mistakenly. At various points of his speeches, he expresses this one particular desire. He wants desperately to be able to plead his case before God, to go to that heavenly court and plead his case before God, though he doubts he would ever get that chance. He wants it. But he also despairs at the idea of getting the chance because he says over and over throughout the book, even if he could somehow have the opportunity to present his case to God in heaven, he believes that though he is in the right, God is so great and so powerful that Job would be overwhelmed and defeated in court, even though he's innocent, right? God is so great and powerful that even though I'm in the right, I'd never be able to convince him of that. Job believes in his innocence. He believes that God is just and must have made a mistake. But he doesn't believe it's within his power to represent himself or to win an argument with God. There's lots of logical inconsistencies in Job's speech. He oscillates between confidence and despair, confusion. He himself declares that his own words are often too rash in his pain. He becomes clearly suicidal, wishing for extending chapters that he had never been born. His pain becomes so great that he wishes that it would all just end, that he would die and poof out of existence, know nothing but blackness. He does not feel like he has it in him to make it to the end of his own story. He doesn't care how it ends or what purpose there might be. It's just too much. Then at the end of the book, God shows up. He reveals himself to Job. And he never explains to Job why it is that he was suffering. God never tells Job about the whole courtroom scene in heaven with Satan. The point of the book of Job is not to answer the question, why do we suffer? The answer, and the answer to that question is certainly not, well, Satan did it. God has nothing to do with your suffering. God comes. He never mentions Satan. He takes full credit for all that Job has suffered. And then he mostly just asks Job a series of rhetorical questions. God reveals a clearer picture through those questions of his glory to Job, of his power and wisdom as evidenced in creation. He shows himself to Job and what kind of God he is. I don't know if this is true or not. I tend to imagine that visions accompanied these awesome questions. At the end of the book, we get God appearing and he says, Who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Speaking of Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? Oh, Job, how dare you question me like you have been? Now it's my time to question you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? "'Tell me, if you have understanding, "'who determined its measurements? "'Surely you know. "'Have you commanded the morning since your days began, "'caused the dawn to know its place? "'Have you entered into the springs of the sea "'or walked on the recesses of the deep? "'Have you entered the storehouses of the snow "'or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, "'which I have reserved for the time of trouble, "'for the day of battle and war? "'Has the reign a father? "'Or who has begotten the drops of dew?' From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maserote in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish the rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens? And on it goes. The Lord's speech in Job 38 through 41 is beautiful, worth reading in its entirety another time. Here we see in it all, God confronts Job. He does not reveal the reason for Job's suffering, but he shows Job how complex and wonderful the world is, and by logical conclusion, how not just powerful God is, but how wonderful and wise he must be to run it all. And the point is, when confronted with God's glory, with his wisdom and power, Job recognizes that everything is more complex than he could ever begin to imagine or fathom. And even though he may not understand why he suffers, he can trust God completely to be just and good and to order and run the world. Job confesses at the end of the book, at the end of having seen God face to face, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. (laughs) I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job, when confronted with God's Wonder, his glory, his beauty. He repents of doubting God's justice. He repents of despairing. He repents of his belief that God could have made a mistake. Job's repentance at the end of the book is in fact a key part of fulfilling everything we are told about Job at the beginning. His repentance is part of the way that he is blameless and just, that he could be described that way. He was not blameless and just because he never sinned, He sinned throughout his speeches, but he was counted blameless and just because he trusted God throughout his entire life. And when suffering came, suffering that was not a punishment for any particular sin, when unexplained suffering came and it rocked him, he still repented when confronted by God. When Job came face to face with God, he did not curse God. He repented. Thus Job's repentance at the end of the book far from undermining the earlier statements about Job and his blamelessness uh, that God made to Satan and that the narrator made, all of this repentance is actually the culminating, consummating victory over Satan. Job saw God face-to-face and repented. Satan said, he'll see you face-to-face and curse you. When Job Job saw him face-to-face, he repented. And in that way, Job spoke correctly. Job, who offered sacrifices at the thought that his children could have sinned. When he saw God, he realized his own sin, and in his suffering, he repented. That's what God means when he says the friends spoke wrongly and Job rightly. Job was more correct about his situation not being a result of sin. In the beginning, he, had, he wasn't as simplistic as his friends, even though he made lots of mistakes in his sufferings. Both parties spoke wrongly of God. But Job's faith could be corrected by God and with God. Both Job and his friends believed things that were too simplistic about how the world works. But Job was able to put his hand on his mouth and correct himself. There's so much more we could say about the book. It is long and complex. But now it's time to consider our specific text, chapter 16. This is Job's second round of responses to his friends. His friends were condemning him. Job responded. His friends were condemning him. Now we're in the second round of responses at this point in the book, Job is still busy defending his innocence while at the same time feeling suicidal despair. And Job often speaks error in his grief. So we keep that all in mind as we now listen to Job chapter 16. So I invite you to turn with me there. We're going to have our eyes on the text throughout the rest of the sermon. We'll read it all in its entirety to begin. So Job chapter 16. So then Job answered. He answered his friends and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Or I could strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. But if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. My men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target, his archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Now, because this is all poetry and it can sometimes be obscure, and we don't have the benefit of having read the whole book recently, we're going to read that again, line by line, and we'll explain each portion of the poem just to make sure that we're on the same page with what's going on in Job 16. In this poem, we do find in the midst of despair a very curious faith. So we'll, we'll go back through Job 16, line by line, a little chunk at a time, and we'll kind of explain what's going on. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. And here Job's complaining about his friends. You guys are terrible at this. You are no comfort to me. That's how the friends started out, right? Ostensibly, they were there to comfort Job, to help him, but they failed. And then Job asked this question, shall windy words have an end, or what provokes you that you answer? Windy words, words that are empty and vain. When he asked, shall they have an end, he's saying, are you ever going to stop talking? Your, Your words are worthless. And he sarcastically asked them why they even bother speaking. Please, just shut up. Why do you feel the need to keep talking and saying these things? What, what What's provoking this out of you? He says, I could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Or I could strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Here Job makes the point, you, you have it easy. You have it easy. You, 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 in, in my suffering and your lack of suffering, you have it easy. So reverse our positions. I could say all the same things to you. But he has a, there's an implied or at the beginning of verse 5. Or I could actually be a comfort to you. There, there, there is a way to do this rightly. It's not the, the main point of the sermon, but there, there is a way to address someone in their suffering rightly. There's a way to use the words to help in suffering rather than cause more suffering. But then Job also says, If I speak, though, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? In other words, he's saying, my pain are, he's like, I, I, I could comfort you. If, if positions were reversed, I could be a comfort. I, I know how to do it. But my pain and suffering are to such a degree that I'm unable to do that for myself right now. I can't talk myself out of this. I cannot speak truth to myself in a way that comforts and soothes me. And nor can I just wait this out, right? It's not going to get better. It's not one of those time will heal all things. There's a reason why Job is so sure that things won't get better, right? He's like, if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? It's a rhetorical question. It's like, even if I endure this, is the pain going to go away? No, no, it's not. There's a reason why he's so sure it won't get better. He says, very next line, Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. Job is confident that time won't heal these wounds because God is the one who is against Job. And God will not tire or relent. Things would be different if it was anyone else, but surely it is God. He's worn me out. He's taken away all my friends and help, so things are never going to get better. He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. My leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. Here, Job at least tacitly agrees that to at least most people, most creatures... His suffering is, in fact, evidence that he has sinned. That's what he means when he says his shriveling is a witness against him. My shriveled state, my leanness, that is a sign to the watching cosmos, evidence in the heavenly courtroom that God is angry and that I am being punished. And if God is punishing me, that must mean I am guilty of sin. At least everyone will assume that, because how could God make a mistake? Thus, all of this is a clear sign of sin in my life. Or at least that God thinks there's sin in my life. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hand of the, of the wicked. Notice how Job is, is explicit about God being behind his suffering. Even as there might be human agents that are actually uh, bringing about his suffering, he is clear. God is ultimately the source of my suffering. It is ultimately all from God. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior, all this military image. Here Job's complaint starts to crescendo. He says, I was doing just fine, but then God set his sights on me. He gutted me, left my insides spilled on the ground in a bloody, disgusting mess. The language is deliberately graphic. If you take even a moment to to try to imagine or picture the words that Job is describing, it's graphic. God is being, Job is complaining. God is being excessively violent towards him. Job is a slaughtered foe. God has shown no mercy or restraint. In fact, there's overkill. He surrounded Job with his archers. How many archers do you need to kill one man? Coming at Job with everything that he has, he leaves Job gruesomely dead in the street. And the next line, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Here Job returns to basically literal a basically literal description of where he is now. He is overcome with grief. He wears the clothes of grief. That was a literal thing. You put on sackcloth he lies in the dirt in the ground again probably literal probably out in the dump he has nothing left he's overwhelmed and exhausted and hollow he's cried so much that his complexion is shot and his eyes have dark circles underneath him and he's experienced all this grief despite the fact that he hasn't done anything wrong job again asserts his innocence he says i did not commit any violence and i have been faithful in prayer and worship and again remember the beginning of the book No argument about that. Job's not wrong to say that. Then then there's a turn. There's a turn here. O earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. Despite the longing for death that Job has vocalized at multiple points uh, by this point in the book, here Job clings to hope. That's what's going on in this verse. This is the pleading of hope. That's what he means by crying out for his blood not to be covered and for his cry to find no resting place. In other words, don't, don't cover this up. Don't let this be forgotten. Don't let my cry go out before it's addressed. He's praying, please do not let this case of mine be forgotten. I don't just want to die. He has talked elsewhere like he just wants to die and poof out of existence. But here he cries, no, no, that's, that's not what I really want. That, that's just the pain talking. I want a resolution. Do not let my suffering go unanswered. Do not let the curious case of Job's sufferings become lost in time. World, keep watching until this is resolved. Make my sufferings known until the heavenly court takes notice. Then he says, even now, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. Job has repeatedly cried out for the opportunity to present his case to God while at the same time despairing because he doesn't believe he has a chance of winning the case even while being innocent. But here Job continues his cry of hope by saying that he hasn't given up on divine justice for himself. He doesn't just want to die and have his case forgotten because he does believe that he has someone who will testify for him in heaven, who will help his case, who will do what he himself cannot. There is a spiritual witness for him in the heavenly court. At least that's what Job believes. And that's why even as he views God as the enemy behind all this, he still has hope. My friends scorn me, he says. My eyes My eye pours out tears to God. Even as Job is rejected by all his friends, while recognizing that his abandonment was ultimately the result of God's action, after describing God as a warrior attacking him, he prays to God. My eye pours out tears to God. He seeks the help of God the one causing all his problems unfairly and unjustly in his mind. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Job wants God to argue the case with God. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Isn't that a strange thing to say? I need God to argue my case with God because I can't. A man can argue his case with another man, but a man can't do it with God. I need God to do it. I know God is high above me. I know he is the source of my suffering. So the only one who can help mediate between me and God is God himself. Job knows he cannot stand before God and argue his case, and so he prays, God, please argue my case with yourself. Job knows he needs a divine heavenly mediator, a divine lawyer on his case to go before God the judge. And he hopes that God himself will step into that role for him. It is a very surreal and odd way to talk, but it's paralleled elsewhere in the book. is not the only time we get this kind of strange image, strange way of talking. Job hopes for a divine mediator at other places. Elihu, and we won't get into what to do with his speeches, but Elihu speaks of a heavenly representative among God's council who will step forward and speak for God's people. Job declares confidently that God, the source of his suffering, is also his Redeemer. He says, I know, famously, I know that my Redeemer lives. And notice the logic that Job props up his prayer to God with right at the end of the chapter. So he says, I, I, I cast my prayer to God. I, have a, I need him to plead my case. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Job says, in effect, hurry, I'm going to die. Don't let my case end this way with no resolution. If Job had died and become nothing, if if there was nothing after death, if he goes into blackness without his suffering being resolved like he claimed he wanted at many points, that would have made his entire life absurd. It would have made everything absurd. Truly, there would be no justice. So Job prays, don't let me die. Don't let me poof out of existence before this is finished. I know I said I wanted that, but I don't really. I need you to step in and I need you to help me. What a curious faith Job has. And that's the point. Even in all his suffering, despair, and oftentimes illogical complaints, he still clings to and looks toward God. He still cries out toward God. He still prays to God. For all the sin and Job's complaining, he still has faith. And that means something. The heart that trusts God is the one that recognizes his glory and repents at the sight of it. Job believed so strongly in God's goodness and justice that even when he doubted that justice emotionally, he clung to the hope that God himself would mediate on his behalf. God himself would step in and resolve all this. He didn't know how. He had no vision of how that could happen. He couldn't imagine how, and yet he trusted. In Job's grief, he recognized a profound truth. We do indeed need a heavenly mediator. We have no chance to stand before God and be in the right. We have no chance to understand everything that goes on in the universe. We have no chance of comprehending all of God's plans and purposes. We need someone who does, who understands all that, and who is on our side in heaven advocating on our behalf. Because even if we could stand in heaven, there's no way we would be able to intelligently represent ourselves. Because we just don't have the minds, wisdom, or knowledge. We need a perfectly wise, perfectly just lawyer who understands all the intricate workings of the world, all the reasons behind all the happenings, who understands all the whys, and who represents our interests. I mean, really, think about it just for a moment. Be logical and honest for a moment. Even if you could stand before God, I've had friends literally say to my face, Oh, one day if, if you're right and there's God and I disagree with you, one day if I stand before God, I'm going to question him about this and this. I'm going to bring this down on him. And you really think about it. How on earth are you going to argue anything or appeal to him for anything if you stand before God? You don't understand this world. You don't under- understand all the, the mysteries of quantum physics. You, don't, you couldn't fathom the breadth of the visible universe. You can't run the delicately balanced ecosystems. You don't give breath of life to the animals. You couldn't possibly understand all the whys for what God allows and ordains, even if he tried to explain them to you. Even if he tried to explain, you wouldn't be able to understand. So how in your ignorance could you hope to represent your interests when there's so much going on directly relevant to you that is simply above your pay grade? How often I find myself discussing something about my children with Lexi and with five children you're rarely alone and so they hear we're making some plan for their future and they have input. Like, oh, well, I think, and I didn't ask you what you think and I'm not interested in what you think and we're juggling a dozen things that you do not even possibly comprehend and therefore your input is totally mute. Mute. How much more, our Heavenly Father, infinitely above us, At least one of the reasons that God ordained this whole episode is so that his people could hear this important truth. You need someone to stand for you in the heavenly courtroom. You need someone wiser than yourself, someone smarter, someone better. You need someone infinitely wise, infinitely smart, infinitely good to represent you and your interests. Job tells us in chapter 16, through all his grief, you need a divine lawyer. Job 16 also tells us you can trust God himself to take up that role for you. If you have faith in God, he will argue your case for you. He will take your side in heaven. The one who knows all things and runs all things in ways that are often unintelligible to us will specially, uniquely represent you in heaven. He will take up your interests, work for what is ultimately best for you. That is precisely what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God in the flesh. Truly God and truly man, so that he could actually mediate from God to man. That's the point of Jesus' sufferings that we're now considering in the book of John. God became a man, and then he suffered. Jesus, a righteous sufferer, like Job. But whereas Job was only relatively righteous, Jesus was perfectly righteous. And yet, he still endured rejection by men and the shame of the cross, all culminating ultimately in drinking the cup of God's wrath, in experiencing the wrath of God the Father against sin, the point of Jesus' sufferings was so that God could bear the punishment of His sinful people that His sinful people deserve, and secure a place for them in His kingdom. God purchases for His people an unassailable status of innocent and righteous for His people, so that they can be confident that none of their sins will get in the way of His heavenly representation of them. Jesus has made it so that he is now a lawyer representing an innocent client. So though you do have sins, if you are in Christ, you are innocent. And the point of Jesus' resurrection is that he has conquered even death. The enemy that Job feared would have made his whole life pointless. If death was the end, then Job's suffering would have been pointless. Job hoped for something beyond the grave. If non existence was the end of your suffering, then it indeed would have been pointless. Because Jesus died and was raised for his people, we have hope for beyond the grave. We have hope that our suffering is not meaningless. And not only did Jesus conquer death, but he ascended into the very heavenly courtroom that we have been talking about. Jesus, the God-man, is in heaven now, ruling and interceding. All his life and ministry was the lead-up, was laying the groundwork so that he could perfectly represent us in heaven. He stands in the heavenly court, the grand council of God, and he represents his people in prayer and argument. Jesus does everything that Job could barely will himself to hope for. Jesus takes the role of priest, mediator, lawyer for his people. He covers their sins by pain with his own blood. He purchases their innocence, and then he represents them in heaven against all the accusations of Satan that he could make based on the law. We should be reminded of another scene in heaven where Satan was accusing. In Zechariah 3, we read this vision that the prophet Zechariah saw. He he said, I saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your guilt away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's what Jesus does. He rebukes the accuser. He provides the clean garments then count count as his people providing them. He makes his people fit to stand in heaven. He takes their guilt away and then he stands by his people. If you're not a a believer, if you're not a believer, Jesus will do that for you if you trust him. Your, Your suffering doesn't have to be meaningless, pointless. If you trust Jesus... He will take away your guilt. He will provide you with this proper spiritual heart attire so that you will be welcome in the kingdom of heaven. He will grant you that status of innocent despite your many crimes because he's paid for them with his blood. And all throughout the rest of your earthly life, he will represent you as your lawyer in heaven. He will stand for you so that no cosmic accusation can stick. He will guarantee you that your suffering is not meaningless, even as you grasp futilely at straws trying to understand it sometimes. Christian, this is why you can, in the midst of terrible suffering and crippling grief, trust God. Because you have a mediator in heaven who is for you. Jesus understands all the workings of this world, he knows all the secrets, he knows all the relevant details. He has all the evidence and he argues on your behalf. Your cancer in your job loss in your grief in your loneliness and all the other things that you suffer and you have no other explanation for, no explanation for why a good God would allow it, you can be confident that you can still believe that God is good. You can still pray to him because Jesus represents you and he orders the whole cosmos in ways that will ultimately work out for your good even as you don't understand it. Jesus promises that your suffering will ultimately increase your joy together with him in the kingdom of heaven, in the wonders of the new earth, in eternal life as God intended for his people to enjoy. You don't have to understand the hows. He promises that's what he's doing. He has conquered death. So that enemy can no longer make your, life, your suffering absurd and pointless. You may not understand it. There's so much of our suffering that we will never understand. I think even into heaven. Sometimes people talk like, oh, when we get to heaven, we'll understand everything. I don't think that's true. I don't think anywhere in the Bible indicates when we get to heaven, somehow we will become God in our knowledge. We can't, we can't. Some things we will never understand a million years from now, we will still not understand them. But if we are connected to Jesus Christ by faith, we can trust that God will resolve our suffering ultimately in a way that does us good and brings him glory. He will resolve our suffering ultimately in ways that will help us enjoy His love. God loves His people. And just as children often fail to understand why their parents do what they do, so God, infinitely wiser than us, infinitely more loving, does things that we often do not understand. But because of Jesus, Paul the Apostle can confidently declare, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also calls. Those whom he calls, he also justifies. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who can condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword? Paul was reading Job. Though we know, at least to a degree, we know why Job suffered what he suffered. We don't, we don't really know all the whys of God's plan, even in that. But even though we have a little more knowledge than Job, we got that prologue, we saw what happened in heaven with Satan, the point of Job is not that suffering becomes more bearable when we have the whys. We often never get those whys. The point of Job is that God will oversee our suffering ultimately to good purposes, and we can trust him because of how great and beautiful, wise and wonderful and loving he is. And yet we have an even greater view than Job did. Job saw dimly. We see the plan of God more clearly. We needed a divine mediator. God provided one in his son Jesus so that now we can have a perspective and confidence that is like Job's but built on a much clearer understanding of these foundational truths that make faith work. We have a vision and revelation of God's glory that surpasses the one that Job saw and satisfied him. So pick up the Bible and read. Take up the word and savor the revelation of God's glory in Jesus. When you suffer in 2023, read the word and look at Jesus. Marvel at his goodness. Enjoy his mercies. Be intrigued by his wisdom. Be confused by his hard sayings. Delight in his compassion. Puzzle over his parables. Thank him for his sufferings and be confident in his resurrection and representation for you. And then pour out your tears to him, knowing that he will argue your case for you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have not left us without a mediator in heaven. We thank you that there is one who understands all the whys of this world, all the things we couldn't possibly hope to understand and who represents our interests. We thank you that he has granted us the status of innocence so he can represent us confidently, so that he will always win the case. And so we ask that even in the midst of suffering that we do not understand, that you would grant us that faith, that vision of of your son, Jesus, that would sustain us all our days. We pray this all in his name. Amen.